The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, very bad opinions, a lot of identity politics, a small quota of disturbing sexual imagery, but very little hope. Saturday the 25th of June 2022, the America is disintegrating and we're going along for the ride with Bette Midler at our side. In this episode, you'll hear about a massive loss of rights for American women. We have just received word of a decision in one of the most consequential cases before the Supreme Court in decades. Peter Credlin accurately describes her own opinions. Utterly meaningless. And we use history to understand the present. No matter how liberal, how tolerant, how educated we are, we can't help but divide the world into us and them. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm flagpole of mateship and livability. Melbourne's been named as Australia's most livable city. A new livability index ranked it as the 10th best city to live in the world, while Sydney came in at number 13. Perth ranked 32nd, Adelaide 30, Brisbane dropped a huge 17 places to become the 27th most livable city, and that's because of tough COVID border closures in Queensland last year. What I love about that report uh, is that, yes, Melbourne is the most livable city in Australia. What they don't really emphasise is that not that many years ago, Melbourne used to top that global list. Now it's Barely in the top 10, it's equaled number 10 with Osaka in Japan, according to the, the Economist's intelligence unit, which puts together this list each year by, well, they don't, I was about to say by pulling numbers out of their ass. They, they don't, they have, a, they have a process. Get the report. You can see how they do it. Uh, for the record, the top cities are Vienna, Copenhagen, Zurich, Calgary, which is in Canada, Vancouver, also Canada, Geneva, Frankfurt, Toronto, in Canada, Amsterdam, and as I say, uh, Melbourne and Osaka equal at number 10. Uh, Down at the bottom of the list, uh, the worst is Tehran in Iran, uh, then uh, Doula in Cameroon, Harare in Zimbabwe, Dakar in Bangladesh, Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea, Karachi in Pakistan, Algiers in Algeria, Tripoli in Libya, Lagos in Nigeria. Yes, I understand Lagos is a shithole. Uh, according to the person who told me, who would know? I can't remember who it was now. Um, oh, David Kilcullen, the um, uh, strategic chap, used to be in the army. He's been to Lagos. And Damascus in Syria. Now, it's not like uh, there's a poll on this. This is all done using this completely arbitrary system of, of points. Uh, categories are. Let me pull the report up in front of me. You can you can download this download this from the Economist yourself. It's not that hard. Category one: stability, in the sense of is there crime, violent crime, terrorist threats, military conflict, etc. Category two: healthcare. 
Now, for some reason, the first one's 25% of the total score, then healthcare's 20%. I, I, I don't know why these numbers. Category three, culture and environment. Oh, culture and environment, which includes food and drink, the level of corruption, social or religious restrictions, humidity, sporting availability. Uh, that's that's culture and environment, apparently. Category four, education, 10% of the total. Category five, infrastructure, 20% of the total. That That's transport, telecommunications, water. Uh, and so on. And then they put that into the global livability matrix and come out with those numbers. Look, I find those things interesting. I I don't know that, it, you know, we could argue about what the weight rate weighting should be, what the, uh, the numbers should be in each one uh, and so on. Uh, I personally think that the availability of good public health care for me, puts livability way up the list. Suck shit, though, Sydney. You're not even in the top ten anymore. Um, but over at Sky News, Peter Credlin, uh, who was, of course, uh, Tony Abbott's chief of staff when uh, Crusader Rabbit was prime minister, uh, uh, Peter Credlin, of course, found something to complain about. In the surest sign yet that so many of these things are utterly meaningless, News today that Melbourne remains the most livable city in Australia and the only Australian capital to make it into the list of the top 10 livable cities in the world. The list by The Economist magazine ranked Melbourne number 10 in the world, with the cities of Vienna, Copenhagen and Zurich taking out the top three spots. Despite being the most locked down city in the world, Melbourne is said to have won accolades for its culture and entertainment. Now, seriously. I bet none of the judges even made it out here to have a look because if they did, they would find a Melbourne CBD. It's a shadow of its former self. That they've ranked Melbourne higher than Sydney or Brisbane or even Hobart, and I live in Melbourne's inner city, I think there's a lot more help needed to get Melbourne and its businesses back on its feet than this ranking might suggest. And a big part of that is the Premier prepared to demand public servants get back into the office, but I wouldn't hold our breath until after the state election. If it's utterly meaningless, Peter Credlin, as as you just said, why are you even reporting on it? Oh, that's right. It's so you can have a go at Premier Dan Andrews of Victoria for some reason, even though you've said it's meaningless. He needs to do something about it. They're not very good at the joined-up thinking over at Sky News Australia, are they? Are they? Are them? Them. I'll come back to them a bit later in the podcast. Of course, you can't have a livable city without flags, and flags have to go on flagpoles. But the other day, I was forced to say, yeah, forced, I was forced to say the following on Twitter, quote, I see there's a lot of instant fucking experts out there tonight on the subject of building three six-storey high, long-lasting all-weather flagpoles on a structure that's 134 metres above the water with road and rail traffic running under the construction site. Well done, you. I guess there is a chance you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about there, so I will let 2GB's Ben Fordham explain. Sorry, sorry, yeah, I, I know, but... <sighs> 
16 minutes after 8 o'clock Monday morning and it hasn't taken long this morning for the open line and the text line and the emails to fire right up when we discovered that it was going to cost $25 million to put a flagpole on the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So the Aboriginal flag is going to have a permanent spot on the Harbour Bridge and I think that that is a good decision. But the cost is just astronomical. Not 25000 or 250000 or $2.5 million, $25 million. And when Dominic Perrottet was asked about this over the weekend, he seemed to be laughing about it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it does, apparently. I'm even surprised it takes this long. I go to Bunnings myself and climb up there and put the pole up. <laughs> but apparently it does. Um, apparently that's the costing. I think it would be easier to laugh this off if we weren't talking about $25 million of taxpayer money to erect a flagpole. The New South Wales Premier is on the line. Dominic Perrottet, good morning to you. Good morning, Ben. You realise this isn't funny? Well, Ben, the whole process to me has been incredibly frustrating. Um, and, you know, not just the time uh, that, it's, that it takes. I mean, the advice that I've received from the department um, has been that at, the, at its initial stage was that it would take a couple of years to achieve. Um, and now the cost has come back um, at $25 million. And from my perspective, um, uh, as I was saying yesterday, it just doesn't, it seems, it doesn't seem to pass the pub test um, when it comes to uh, putting up a flag. Now, the advice that um, I've received has been uh, that it's complex, uh, that there are heritage concerns. Um, they're obviously all, all the poles will need to be replaced and they're, all three of them are the equivalent size of a six-storey building, so I accept that that's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's not a, a simple process and it's not a simple construction. Uh, but like uh, your listeners and like most fair-minded people across the state, I would say that that seems to be a pretty ridiculous and outrageous cost. You can tell um, that there's a New South Wales election coming up in March next year, so less than a year to go. Nine months to go, and suddenly from, oh, the, the experts tell me it'll cost $25 million, but it's something we should do, to talk back callers and the pub test and fair-minded people, it's ridiculous and outrageous. Gee, he bends in the wind more than those flagpoles will be able to do. <laughs> oh. It does ship me. It really does ship me. I and as you know, I use this phrase, instant fucking experts, where, oh, $25 million is a lot of money. I don't know anything about this, but I think it's too much. And drunk people at the pub would think it's too much, and fair-minded people would think it's too much. If you don't think it's too much, well, you're not fair-minded. Don't I, don't I get more in that Ocker Australian accent when I start sounding like right-wing talkback hosts? I think it's genetic. I don't know how much it's going to cost. My my gut feeling, well, it's complicated, right? These these three flagpoles, not just one, three, because you've got the, the national flag, the state flag, and the Aboriginal flag will make a permanent third one. The flagpoles are six storeys high. They're mounted 134 metres, as I said, above the water. You've got road and railway going through it it's a 
a 90-year-old bridge, uh, you don't want to affect the look of the thing, the heritage considerations. You don't want to break the fucker, because that would be good, wasn't it? I mean, millions of dollars does not sound unreasonable for me when you um, when you look at another cost. Every year, there's a fireworks display in Sydney Harbour, around the Sydney Harbour Bridge, some of it from the Sydney Harbour Bridge, uh, and so on. Every year, that costs $7 million. So three flagpoles and their flags, which have got to last... Decades. I mean, another ninety years would be nice. Is not even four years worth of fireworks, and it's there all the time. You don't even have to burn the flag. Uh, Americans' head explode at that. So yeah, shove your instant fucking experts up your ass, people. It's stupid. James Purser on Twitter. Hi, James. Uh, he was shocked by the number of people who who saw like a fake rundown of the flagpole costs that was put out by the shovel. The number of people who thought this was real. He was genuinely depressed by this. And here it is. Here's some of it. The shovel, flag and pole solutions. Quotation, job installation of flag on Sydney Harbour Bridge, date 20th of June 2022. Service, development of mission statement for flag installation, uh, 1.55 million. Creation of four core values that will underpin flag installation, 2.425 million and 80 cents. Creation of flag installation logo and tagline, 1.44 million. Focus group research, etc. blah, blah, blah. Social media profiles, TikTok video, and then flag. Flag, $249.95 and poll, $180.50. Grand total, $24,997,883.75, which is, of course, the quote received by Dominic Perrottet, Premier of New South Wales. People thought that was real. Someone else who thought something was real... Uh, the Daily Oss, which is a publication I'm not as familiar with, uh, but they describe themselves as a social media first news website. Uh, they mocked up a picture of the Sydney Harbour Bridge with the Aboriginal flag on it, uh, even though you can get such pictures already. Um, except uh, they didn't use the Aboriginal flag. They picked another black, red and, and gold flag, uh, the flag of Germany. Uh, so that's good. Germany. Mind you, some of us wouldn't mind our new German overlords. That could be... As Amanda Mead notes at The Guardian, uh, surely completely coincidence that the very next day uh, the editor of The Daily Oss advertised <laughs> for a job to hire a fact-checker. <sighs> On to other things now. Regular listeners, uh, well, oh, if you're not a regular listener, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hope you uh, managed to cope. Uh, but if you are a regular listener, you will know that uh, over the last month or two, I've been relaying to you uh, the correspondence that I've received from someone who we're calling Susan, that's not her real name, uh, about her uh, lust, and I do mean lust, 
for Bob Catter, the Queensland politician. Uh, Susan had uh, initially contacted me in the hope that I would be able to set her up with uh, Bob Catter for a filthy, filthy encounter. Which is something I can't do. Um, I, I have many contacts and skills, obviously, but that's not one of them. Well, Susan does write, Hi, mate. I have some good news. I'm not fantasising about fucking old Bob anymore. And I've worked out why I'd woken up one day and obsessed Bob Catter groupie. Well, she realises it now. I fell asleep with the TV on and Bob Catter had been on, so I got hypnotised to wake up like a magic spell had been cast on me. That's why I reached out to you, although I'm still not sure why I contacted you for help. Uh, yeah, most people think that, Susan. All I can say is thank fuck you could not arrange a CD motel for me to root Bob. If my scratch lotto ticket wins, I'll pay for you to have therapy from this. That's... That's lovely, Susan. I did say people did want to hear more about your progress, and she says, oh, people are so judgy. I bet they really wanted to know if I'd managed to hook up with Bob. Well, yeah, if you had, Susan, we all wanted to hear about how it went, right? Is he as rootable as you think? Well, as he thought, he, he was, is, tense his heart. So thank you, Susan. Uh, Susan also passes on, and I have linked to this, of course. Uh, you can get an essential Bob Catter T-shirt uh, on Redbubble from Mr. Foz, M-R-F-O-Z, designed and sold by Jamie Fosdyke. Um, have a look. It's an amazing design. Bob Catter on your breasts. Uh, I mean, on your bre- on your chest or on your breasts. One or the other. Or both of them. <sighs> Move on, Stalkerian. Move on. A very quick bit of housekeeping this episode. Uh, as you know, we're in the middle of the winter series. Uh, we've had two special guest episodes so far. I am waiting for people to get back to me via email, so I can't tell you just yet who's coming up next. Uh, watch out on Twitter or uh, if you're on the, the mailing list, um, watch out uh, for, for notice of, of who's coming up. Uh, I should know in the next few working days. Um, and if you're not on the mailing list, let me know. Um, some of you have contributed to the podcast, but then when uh, you've got some annoying automated email from possible you've cut me off or something would you wait you don't have to get my emails but if you do they're not many maybe one or two a month and i tell you what's coming up on the podcast i should probably do some more things there uh, so i don't know when the next episode is but what i can do is say thank you very much to the people who contribute and make this podcast possible so of course thank you to all the people who pledged their support to the winter series in particular, that continues. I've got some – look, there will be great guests. You know there'll be great guests. I just haven't got a, a green tick next to them. They've just got a pencil question mark so far. On this episode, I'd like to particularly thank Phil Koenig. Hello, Phil. Uh, this week, his Edict 02 Schooner annual subscription came up for renewal. I'm very bad at keeping track of them. 
you think I'd use a computer or something. Uh, but when the annuals pop up, I go, oh, wow. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. That's that's lovely. Thank you very much. So thanks, to Phil, for that, uh, for your ongoing support. If you would like to be as lovely as Phil Koenig and possibly even as handsome, which, you know, probably wouldn't be that. I mean, oh, God, I'll get myself in trouble. Uh, the 9pmedict.com slash tip. The 9pmedict.com slash tip. Uh, or go to click through shows you how to subscribe and you can get trigger words and conversation topics and, and all those things, even though it's not during one of the crowdfunding campaigns. Um, this would be a lovely time to do it. I am at a disadvantage, of course, because not being a charity, I'm not tax deductible for these uh, contributions. But uh, you, you could just say it, it was tax deductible. Just put it on your tax return. They won't know. Well, yeah, I'm not a qualified financial advisor or tax accountant, as you may have guessed. The 9pmedic.com slash tip. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. On, oh, I haven't done this for a while, uh, so not on every episode, not even on some episodes, well, on some episodes. On some episodes of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. And I've seen some excellent thinking this week. I'm going to choose just three of them, though, and I'll power through them. Uh, number one goes to Greg Sheridan at The Australian, Mr Murdoch's broadsheet newspaper slash group blog, who had the headline this week, Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet. How come we never hear about the deadly and widespread scourge of Christophobia? I have not linked to this piece. It's one of the few things I haven't linked to in this episode. Uh, that's on the website, the 9 You understand how the web works, I'm sure. Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet. It's not. Do I have to explain why it's not? <sighs> Elephant stamp to Greg Sheridan. Number two goes to Representative Daryl Issa, who is the Republican representative for California's 5th district, district in um, uh, the US Congress. He describes himself as a father, tech entrepreneur and congressman. Uh, he, he tweeted... About a week ago? Monday, in fact? No. Whenever he did. Just when you think Biden's record can't get worse, only this fiscal year the Border Patrol has arrested 50 people on the FBI's terror watch list. That's more than the previous five years combined. And and he thinks this is a bad thing that Border Patrol has managed to arrest potential terrorists. As the ABC's Matt Bevan tweeted, Joe Biden's administration is catching too many terrorists. Vote Republican. That's probably going to turn out to be true, except they won't be that kind of terrorist. <clears throat> so, Daryl Issa, Eleven stamp for you. And finally, uh, you'll have to 
look at this yourself. The Daily Show, the American television program, there's a guy on that called Jordan Klepper who goes out and talks to Trump supporters, MAGA supporters, um, people on the right, uh, and and discusses their views with them. Well, he um, went out the other day to talk to people outside a Trump rally slash event of some sort uh, about the January 6th hearings, you know, the hearings into the insurrection that happened on the 6th of January, um, which, you know, was, was, was a not good thing. What would Trump supporters think when they're presented with some of the evidence of that? It's... It, it is a visual experience as well as a, an oral one, so you do have to go through. I have linked to that one, uh, the Daily Show clip with Jordan Klepper. It is on your hymn sheet. It is number 13. I'll tell you if it's not 13, but I think it's linked number 13 on the podcast webpage. Uh, so... Elephant stamp of approval for excellence in the category of thinking to everyone interviewed in that clip, particularly the two young women who didn't even know what January 6th was. They, they hadn't heard of it. They, they didn't even know it was a thing. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. Oh, g'day, mate. The most quintessentially Australian greeting, or, you know, so the the stereotype goes. Um, and mateship, the word mateship, it is something that is, is put forward as a distinctly Australian value. You know, that's what they had on the beaches at Gallipoli on April the 25th. Uh, they had mateship. That's what got them through. Mateship is what allows us to... To survive as a nation, well, my interest was therefore piqued by a headline I saw in Mumbrella uh, the other day, mumbrella.com.au, the, the marketing and media website. Very, very good. It's worth, you know, good news website. But the headline was, Havis Labs, YouGov study reveals maybe the Aussie mateship has sailed. Which is interesting. It, it began... A generational divide among Australians has put traditional values like mateship at risk of extinction. The Australian National Values in 2022 study revealed long-standing traditional Aussie values that heart back to the 1930s and 40s are not nearly as important as they were to past generations as a shift to hold more progressive modern mindset among the Australian population takes hold. Now, it says, while boomers hold tightly onto mateship, younger generations place greater uh, value on sustainability, achievement, intellectualism, progressiveness, art and culture, and innovation. The biggest difference, says the article, was seen in intellectualism, which was named a top 10 value by 38% of Gen Z, 32% of millennials, but just 13% of boomers and 8% of those aged 77 and older, uh, the so-called silent generation, because 
unlike the boobers that followed, they know when to shut the fuck up. Now, that's interesting. But when I, you know, go and grab the report, which I thought I would have opened in front of me, just uh, chat amongst yourselves while I... uh, Okay, so here are the figures. Mateship was listed by 60% of boomers in their top 10 and 65% of the older-than-boomers. Gen X, though, it's down at 44%, less than half uh, had it in their top 10. Uh, Millennials, 37%, even lower. Gen Z, 47%, which is interesting. Um, Another figure out of it was nationalism. Top 10 value uh, for one in three boomers, just one in five Gen Z. Uh, and uh, look, you can look up the figures yourself. I've, I've linked to the thing. There's a reg wall there. Um, they just want your email address on a mailing list. If you're very nice to me, I'll just email you the damn thing. It's interesting, but this emphasis on mateship, given how much they talk about mateship, and indeed in the in the report, it's the one they begin with. That's the headline thing. They don't actually define it as any anything more than just friendship and loyalty. In fact, the word friendship only appears once in the whole report. That's in that definition of mateship that I just read. So I just wonder whether friendship is is what people call what old people called mateship. In in fact, they say that mateship isn't a thing now for quote Younger people, women, foreign-born Australians and families with children under 18 at home. My my theory here is that maybe mateship, the word itself, is old-fashioned and blokey because it's old, only old and blokey people who who use it. You know, g'day, mate. Oh, mate. Yeah, it's our, it's our mateship which keeps us together as opposed to, you know, homoerotic thrusting in some way. Wes Mountain, who's multimedia editor at Conversation, uh, Edu, and also a, a cartoonist, he said, we should stop using it, the word um, mateship, that is. It's a stupid word and tries to make Australian exceptionalism of being nice and clannish to justify all our demonstrably bad behaviour to any other. Uh, indeed, I was going to add something like that. This This idea that having long-lasting loyalties to your closest friends is somehow uniquely Australian is such persistent bullshit. Anyway, this, this report, look, it's worth looking at. The, the difference on intellectualism and nationalism uh, and some of those values is interesting. Um, and it, it does show a distinct shift in some areas of what are Australian values, and it does uh, make that that phrase traditional Australian values just look more and more like out-of-date boomer values or the silent generation values or whatever. Have a look. Check it out, mate. As you may know, I uh, have been following uh, a number of video series on YouTube, but in particular, uh, because this is the one I want to talk about, uh, from Time Ghost TV, their World War II week-by-week series, which is 
exactly what it says on the tin uh, each week. There's a video hosted by Indy Nidell about what happened uh, in World War II N years ago. They're up to June 1943, so they didn't quite do it on around 10 numbers. Uh, and as well as the main series, they have a number of sub-series. There's spies and ties about espionage. There's occasional specials uh, on uh, the hardware, but one of the good things about the series is it doesn't concentrate on the boys' toys stuff. It looks at the economy. There's a sub-series called On the Home Front and so on. One of the, the sub... It's very good. One of the sub-series I, I haven't been able to listen to um, is presented by Spartacus Olsen, one of the co-producers, and it's called War Against Humanity. It's about 60 episodes now. Um, guess why that's hard to listen to? World War II is not a pretty time, and uh, Sparty looks at all of the the grim reality of, of what happened. Um, I have only just started watching that that sub-series from the beginning. It's very good. Um, and you too may find it a bit a bit challenging. It doesn't pull any punches. Um, but there is an episode near the beginning, which which I think is a good one to, to catch as a, a general backgrounder, and and it's called The Neurology of Hate. Here's, here's a fragment. No matter how liberal, how tolerant, how educated we are, we can't help but divide the world into us and them. How we respond to that is, however, very different. The reflexive division into my group and the people outside my group, is a reflex in our brain tied to the survival of the group. An instinct that can easily be abused and turned against humanity if you know what buttons to press and the collective moral standards will allow it. So it turns out, as, as he explains, there are mechanisms in our brain that allow us to be taught who is us and who is them. These categories aren't built in. Societies and cultures move too fast for it to be hardwired. No, we learn who is us and who is them from our environment. And this is exactly what happened in the 1920s and 1930s. The Soviets agitate against the bourgeoisie, the kulaks and the capitalists, the Nazis against the Jews, Slavs, homosexuals, and God knows what. No one likes the Roma and the Sinti. The Japanese de despise the Chinese who hate the Japanese and each other, depending on ideology. The Irish hate the British, those that fear communism agitate against the Russians, and paradoxically, also against the Jews. There is in fact no end to the or unilateral hatred being afforded to others, to them. But it's indeed the Jews that keep on popping up all over the place as the object of suspicion and hatred. So, let's use that as an example when we briefly examine how this works. When the Nazis start out, they can already build on a long tradition that teaches that Jews are not part of us so that they have a shortcut to trigger the us-them response. Now, the us-and-them response does some funny things to our head. Our innate ability to recognize faces, a very special part of our brain, and the traits of individuality of that face is suppressed when we look at them. The usual empathy and sympathy responses we have to other people are also suppressed. We become challenged to process positive words and values when mentioned in connection to images of them. In essence, we are dehumanizing them and perceive them as a menace. 
but many, perhaps most Jews, are not distinguishable from anybody else, so the Nazis need to single them out in some way. It turns out that they can trigger another function of our brain, namely the ability to create strong associations between secondary, arbitrary, immaterial things and the concept of them. This becomes a signal that then triggers our us versus them positive negative response, even without confrontation with them or an absence of us. In his book Behave, professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University, Robert Sapolsky writes, Work related to the mesolimbic dopamine system shows that in a substantial subset of rats, the arbitrary signals itself becomes rewarding. Similarly, an arbitrary symbol of an us core value gradually takes on a life and power of its own, becoming the signified instead of the signifier. Thus, for example, the scattering of colors and patterns on a cloth that constitutes a nation's flag becomes something that people will kill and die for. And when you think about it, that's true, right? We even have uh, people talking about the flag as that's the flag people died for. They didn't die for the fucking flag. They, they died for their nation. They died for us as opposed to them. They went out to kill them. But the flag was this secondary symbol. And, and in their heads, that's what they were fighting for. And, yeah, it, it's true. Just look back at that interwar period and how the hatred was built, right? People of certain religions or certain political be beliefs were branded with insulting nicknames uh, that denied them individuality. They were just part of a mob, save for people from other nations who were perceived as the enemy or even if they might have just been a threat, not even an enemy, they were... The Russians, the communists, the Jews, the Poles, whatever. Um, there was race-based violence in the street uh, with the police turning a blind eye, right, to the brown shirts. Uh, the police sometimes even supported those attacks. Uh, flying the wrong flag made you the enemy, as, we, as I've said. That's, that's we, the us. We have this flag, so we're okay. Um Transgendered people were referred to as sex offenders and as being mutilated. Gays and lesbians were portrayed as diseased and, again, as sex offenders, predators, um, uh, groomers. Children were taken away from parents who refused to make them conform to the state's moral standards. Books by people from any of these out-groups, the them, were banned, even burned. Wait. I've just been talking about the United States, haven't I? Every single one of those things have been happening in the United States and a good few of them already here in Australia. I mean, we like to think we're immune, right, that this is an American thing. That's another them, isn't it? We wouldn't do that. It's them, the Americans. And then you look at what happened literally hours ago as I record this. We have just received word of a decision in one of the most consequential cases before the Supreme Court in decades. The justices have reached a final ruling on the Mississippi abortion law that prohibits nearly all abortions after 15 weeks and directly challenges Roe v. Wade. Let's go right to NBC News Justice correspondent Pete Williams. Pete. 
Lester, this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever granted a constitutional right, which it did so when Roe was decided in 1973, and then took it away, a popular right that was widely recognized. What do we want? From New York. If we don't get it, shut it down. To Miami and the streets of Los Angeles. A nationwide movement reignited by America's highest court. It baffles my mind that people who have no context for other people's lives think they know best. Pro-life is a lie. You don't care if people die. Thousands showing up to voice their anger and disbelief at the Supreme Court's intention to overturn abortion rights. The outcome today is expected to lead to abortion bans in roughly half of all U.S. states. The decision, frankly unthinkable just a few years ago, was the culmination of decades of efforts by abortion opponents made possible by an emboldened right side of the court that's been fortified by three appointees of the former president, Donald Trump. The ruling came more than a month after that stunning leak of a draft opinion by Sam Alito indicating the court was prepared to take this momentous step. What happens next is you're going to have states that uh, that uh, that want to ban abortion, ban abortion. I mean, a number of states like California, uh, Massachusetts uh, have talked about uh, trying to become uh, sort of haven states uh, that they will protect the right for uh, uh, to abortion. You're also having companies I mean, already the, the Walt Disney Company has announced that they will pay for their employees if an employee wants to terminate a pregnancy but lives in a state where it is, uh, it, it's banned. They will pay for that, that employee to travel to a state uh, where, where she can terminate her pregnancy legally. Uh, now that, uh, you know, some advocates say that's, that's nice, but it also does away with the privacy aspect of it. That's a, a compilation of reports there, uh, links on the website. A quick fact check too. The audio of the demonstration, uh, the protest, is actually from last month, but uh, I only noticed just as I was putting this together, and I'm not going back to look for another one. Did you like also how everyone else speaking there was a man? Uh, that's a bit of a thing. So, Yeah. Massive legal case in the United States. Uh, we haven't had a lot of time to digest it yet. Something I did notice, though, was a, a story the other day uh, from Reveal News that Facebook and anti-abortion clinics are collecting highly sensitive information on would-be patients. Um, basically, uh, Reveal News and uh, their colleagues, whose, whose name escapes me just now, they use a tool that detects cookies, keyloggers, other types of using tr uh, user tracking technology. They analysed the sites of nearly 2,500 crisis pregnancy centres and found that at least 294 of them, that's more than more than 10% of them, shared visitor information with Facebook. And in many cases, the information was extremely sensitive. For example, whether a person was considering an abortion or looking to get a pregnancy test or emergency contraceptives. Now, a Facebook spokesperson, Dale Hogan, said it's against our policies for websites and apps to send sensitive information about people through our business tools. Our system is designed to filter out potentially sensitive data it detects, and we work to educate advertisers on how to properly set up our business tools. Now, that's all well and good, 
<laughs> if but if it's against you know if it's against your policies, I mean that that means it never happens, right? Um, if it's designed to filter this stuff out, well, of course it doesn't let it through because everything's perfect in this perfect world. But the reality is more than a third of the websites sent data to Facebook when someone made an appointment for, quote, abortion consultation or, quote, pre-termination screening. And that's that's kind of pretty common, quite frankly, Um because if you've got, you know, Facebook's tracking pixel in your site for whatever reason, maybe you've got a button which says, you know, refer like like share via Facebook or something. That means that every page that you visit on the website, Facebook knows that you've been to that page. It knows the URL. So if you're stepping through pages labeled abortion and then book an appointment, Facebook knows that and it knows who you are because you're probably on Facebook. It's, it's, it, it is pretty easy. You don't have to actively send the information for it to be linked. You just have to have any of Facebook tools, uh, any of Facebook's tools in the site and neglect to really make sure your site's structured so that this highly sensitive information can't get through. What's amazing, though, 39 of the sites, at least 39 of them out of 2,500, sent Facebook details such as the person's name, email address or phone number. The system's designed so that can't happen. Uh, Some of the jokes, well, these aren't jokes. These are a bit dark. Some of the observations uh, about the meaning of all this uh, in the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, given earlier decisions this week, uh, they're all starting to come out. Shannon Watts on uh, Twitter said the same SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, that said yesterday that states don't have the ability to regulate guns, today gave states the power to regulate women's bodies. Uh, Jojo from Jers, I assume that's New Jersey, says maybe someday women in America will have as many rights as guns do. Uh, Ken Christine said pro-life but no baby formula on the shelves. Yeah, okay. Over in Scotland, an observer there said, uh, and I've linked to all of these, SCOTUS officially recognises men as sperm guns, which is why they have more rights. Texas resistor hashtag nasty woman says, well, she did this in a graphic, a lovely 1950s housewife figure holding up a sign, you wouldn't try to regulate my vagina if it fired bullets. There's there's some innovation waiting to happen there. Uh, and that was in reply to Bette Midler. Uh, yes, the Bette Midler who said, get ready, gays, you're next. As I've possibly just explained, this is all part of creating the other, uh, regulating the family and, and so on. Remember, we have this very narrow idea of uh, who are the right people with the right kind of families. Seamus Byrne, an Australian journalist, noted that American political insanity is contagious, a- contagious AF. You could say as fuck. Contagious as fuck, Seamus. Vigilance required. It's the Clarence Thomas opinion that really gets the skin crawling. So, yeah, he's right. 
Justice Clarence Thomas, one of the conservative members of the Supreme Court, uh, according to the New York Times live blog, and that's very good. They, they've really documented well what's been happening around the America in the last 24 hours. Uh, Justice Alito said the court's ruling was limited. He said that to ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterised, we emphasise that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. But Justice Thomas uh, issued a, a concurring opinion with the majority, but he sent a very different message. He wrote that it was strictly true that the majority opinion only addressed abortion, but he said that its logic required the court to reconsider decisions about contraception, gay sex and same-sex marriage. To quote him, we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. Stay tuned for more. Now, in that um, little compilation of reports uh, that you just listened to, uh, they did mention that some organisations uh, in the US uh, are now choosing to support their employees, for example. And, and of course, in the United States, medical care is intertwined with your employment conditions for some reason. It's interesting to compare some approaches. Mike Cannon-Brooks, one of the founders of Atlassian, an Australian, a billionaire, uh, one of Australia's sort of pet billionaires that we like to wheel out from time to time. Uh, well, he he tweeted out what Atlassian thinks. Uh, he said that today's decision by the Supreme Court not only strips away rights from women and pregnant people, but puts their health and safety at risk. At Atlassian, we are dismayed at this decision and stand firmly against the restriction and removal of rights that have been entrusted in people for decades. Star uh, our priority is the health and safety of our employees. Uh, I mean, they say that, but uh, your, your, your real responsibility is to shareholders, mate. Anyway, starting today, US employees of Atlassian living in states that have restricted or barred abortions will be offered reimbursement for travel and accommodations for themselves and a companion should they seek care outside their state. Uh, blumble, blumble, gender equality, sustainable, equitable world. So compare that to uh, this podcast's uh, favourite billionaire, our patron cunt, Elon Musk, who tweeted a chart showing US birth rate has been below min sustainable levels for around 50 years. So Musk's point of view is, yes, the, the population isn't going up. Uh, this is a good thing. Um, I wonder whether Elon Musk has is, is been bold enough to admit that he subscribes to the Great Replacement Theory. You know, the one, white people, white, white, white people genocide. Uh, Zoe, a Zoe says, yeah, banning abortion is inextricably linked to the states deciding parents allowing their trans kids to access gender-related care is child abuse, right? All these attacks on bodily autonomy and further privacy with talk of attacking queer marriage are also about controlling the family, as I just said. So if you, if you see all these things happening around you, 
and think, that's just the America, they'll sort it out. Let's pop back to Spartacus Olsen uh, and the 1930s uh, with, with this reminder about our neurology. After the terror of World War II, we see resurgent identity-based conflicts over and over again. As an informed citizen in a free democratic country, it's really easy to dismiss this as something we, the famous us, wouldn't do, something that happens elsewhere to other people. That is only they, the uneducated and evil them, that are capable of that kind of hatred. Thing is, we're wrong because all of us, without exception, have this capacity hardwired in our brains and under the wrong circumstances, chances are any one of us would have run with the Nazis or Stalinists if we were just at the wrong place at the right time. And he's right, of course, isn't he? We are all subject to this. It's hardwired in our brains. And if you're of the left, for, you know, for example, I suspect many of you listening to this, this podcast are more of the left than of the right. Have a think about what you're doing if you start calling people right-wing nutjobs. There's not a lot of difference, and you're hardwired to do it. Friend of the podcast, Kate Carruthers, hi Kate, says, I predict the US will die the way it was born, in a tax revolt. Eh, what do you reckon? Let me know. You know how to find me. Well, hasn't it been a cheerful little episode this time? But I think it's important to think about that. I, I had originally scheduled this episode to talk about uh, the new Anthony Albanese government one month in, uh, but I'll save that for another time. Give them a bit longer than a month, eh? Two thoughts to finish with. First of all, this one's via Wolfie Rankin on the Twitter. According to... Uh, Someone, this looks like it might be Facebook or something. Kragerhund again. They say, my theory is that reincarnation is real and that's why everything is so fucked up. We got too many people on Earth and their souls were supposed to spend a few more cycles as endangered animals or something, but we fucked the environment and overpopulated. So we get guys who were supposed to be black-footed ferrets or whatever till their soul reached maturity, but instead they're like influencers and politicians. This is also why furries exist. And to finish a tweet from Frankie Boyle, a Scottish comedian, uh, yesterday... I hate it when people say you need to keep a sense of perspective. We're mortal beings on a loveless world in a dying universe. You need to lose perspective as completely as you possibly can. Forget the bigger picture. Comprehending it would drive you insane. That's all the edict for now, you'll be glad to hear. Uh, please do the tip, like, subscribe, send money, etc. Go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip to do that. The next episode will be sometime soon. Until then, I'm still Garion. Wash your hands.
The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.